Welcome to the Lesbian Review Podcast. I'm Sheena and today I'm joined by Karen Callmaker. Karen is the author of at least a million brilliant lesbian fiction novels and she's also one of my favourite authors. I was only really disappointed by one of her books and that's because she killed off the main character from one of her other books within the first few lines and broke my heart. But as with any great story, I couldn't put it down even when I tried. So Karen, thank you for joining me today as we do our top 10 list of novels that changed our lives. It is fantastic to be here. So your latest book is Captain of Industry, and that features many characters from your previous novels, like as side characters. How did people react to that? They're all just kind of crowded into one party scene, and and some people thought that was a crowded party scene, and other people just loved it. They liked the idea that characters are still together, they're still doing the things that they were doing in their original stories, they're still passionate about the same things. But I just thought, well, I, I need, in this scene, for there to be certain kinds of characters, why not just draw on ones I wrote? And it made the scene, in some ways, a lot easier to write as well as giving that little aftertaste for readers so that they could see those characters again, happy and and doing their thing. But you like doing that because you actually did two books, Frosting on the Cake and Frosting on the Cake 2, where you Uh wrote mini stories about characters from your previous books. Yeah, I really do like doing that. Often the characters will creep back into my office and say, oh, by the way, this thing happened. And then I write a story about it. So it's really cool. They're kind of like friends, yeah. <laughs> I would imagine that that gets your, your avid fans like myself very excited. I hope so. Okay, so let's start with a couple of disclaimers. My list of five includes many of my favorites from my top ten list on the Lesbian Review. And the reason is because they're personal favorites because they have quite a personal story very often behind them. So today I'm going to share a little bit about that with some of those, and some of them, they're just really brilliant books, and they kind of changed my outlook on what lesfic could be. Please note that this list does not include all the personal relationships that I've made because of books. So I've made friends with reviewers. I've made a lot of friends with authors because they've asked me to review their books, and so this doesn't include any of that. So if you are listening and you are an author and you are my bud, don't take it personally. This is just a different kind of a list. So Karen, what did you look at when you were picking your books? I get involved with books when I read them, so it's hard to say that that any book I read doesn't change me in some way. So I really focused on books where at the beginning of the book, I was one kind of person. At the end of the book, I felt like a, a changed person because of that book. So I set really, really high standards, but I was trying to get down to five out of thousands. I mean, I read thousands of Harlequin romances and each one of them had a little something about them that I liked and made me feel great. But I, it was really hard, but I finally got down to five books that I was just different at the end of the story. That's pretty much where I was at as well. Great. So number one on my list was Christabel by the amazing Karen Callmaker. (laughs) So I'm going to read the, the Amazon blurb. Um, which I only somewhat agree with. (laughs) Deeper than the city streets, the subways, even the dry riverbeds that no longer flow are the roots of a tree that remembers love and tragedy. Financier Dina Rowland's assignment is to make fashion designer Leo Goranson a lot of money. But the more she knows of him, the more repugnant his personal life is to her. Not the least inconsequential is his unbreakable hold of his greatest asset, supermodel Christabel. One touch in the power and responsibility of Dina's long-hidden heritage threatens to crumble the careful plans that she has made for her life. 
Krista knows that there's no escaping her tormentor. But she has a plan to deny him what he ultimately wants from her. The past can't be changed. Having long accepted her face, she is unprepared for the wild feelings that Dina's eyes arouse in her. There is passion, certainly, but also the rarest feeling of all to her. Hope. Here's what I wrote in my review. A love story that takes place in two times. A bad guy that grows stronger by inflicting emotional pain on others and two women who have been destined to be together for many lifetimes. I love this. Call Maker's Best, and I'm so glad it was finally released to Kindle. This is a fantastic read. Coolmaker has created a moody, epic, romantic, passionate novel that should be read by anyone who really wants to feel passion that spans an eternity. This book made my number one spot on my all-time favorite lesbian novels for the Lesbian Review. So the reason I mostly agree but somewhat disagree with the Amazon blurb is because it doesn't talk about the slightly supernatural elements in the book. And I think that that is very important to this story. This book changed my life because... It was one I was waiting for for years because you originally wrote it under your pen name Laura Adams and I couldn't get hold of it and I tried and tried and tried and for years and eventually when it came out on Kindle it was like this amazing aha moment and then when I read it it was even better than I thought it would be. So this book made a huge impact on me. So yes, that's my number one pick. Wow. <laughs> and yes, that was um, written as Laura Adams. Uh, the blurb would have come from Nyad. That's how long ago it was written. And the firm to belief and actually the unfortunate reality that a lot of readers don't really care for the supernatural and the historic edges that we can put on a romance. And so they downplayed it. And I've often thought of rewriting it because I think actually lesbian readers have gotten a little more broad-minded. And there are those who are looking for some magical realism in their stories and certainly I think the historical element it's one of my favorite things that I've ever done is all the the research that I did into colonial New York so that was it was just fun and thank you yes I agree with you the research was amazing and you really gave a sense of the time and what it was like but you also interspersed it with this kind of these two parallel stories which Oh man, I just love that. There's a lot of people who love that sort of thing where there's the two time periods running parallel to each other with the two romances. So this ticks a lot of really awesome categories. I'm going to actually talk about Christabel in one of my books that changed my life. And I'll talk about why I wrote that book when I get there. <laughs> I look forward to it. Okay, so what's your number one pick? I went in kind of chronological order. And so I think I have to start with Little Women, which I read when I was 10. And I don't think I have to explain a lot about Little Women to anybody. It, I don't know how widely read it is in the UK and in other countries, but... Very widely. It's very widely read. And I just remember when I read it, it's... I didn't think that it was a story about... Um, about women for for all that the title is little women and here i am at the age of 10 and experiencing the this story where there are different types of women and they're almost living exclusively in a community unto themselves so they really didn't have men to fall back on there were no men to rescue them from their their poverty and illness i mean it's set in the american civil war and so they were completely self-reliant and that just had a profound effect on me. There I was, my little budding baby feminist self. And in the, that era, a lot of the books that were written, they were just full of all the, the glurge of, of sort of sappy sentimentalism. And there is a lot of that in the book because that 
that's what was in the era. But the other thing that a lot of people end up focusing on is Joe March as a character who really raged against the confines that society put on her as a female and that her family needs that they need more money they need you know someone to help lead and be strong and she's not allowed to be that person because she's female and so throughout the book she bumps up against her gender as a limitation and the fact that the limitation is arbitrary so that's just another element that also I found myself asking well who put these strictures on Joe why can't she be all of the person that she can be. So at, at the age of 10, that was just really transformative. And, and of course, I liked the romance. I was really a sucker. Even then, I was a sucker for a good romantic story. Um, so instead of reading like the blurb or anything, I have a favorite quote from it, which is their mother saying to Joe this advice. Don't shut yourself up in a bandbox because you are a woman, but understand what is going on and educate yourself to take your part in the world's work, for it all affects you and yours. So just because you're a woman and people tell you to be, you know, a uh, quiet little don't worry your pretty head, it's your obligation to worry your pretty head about things because it all affects you. As Eowyn says in, you know, The Lord of the Rings, the women of this country learned long ago that those without swords can still die upon them. And we live and die on political policies and things that, especially... <laughs> of recent events in America, things that we have an obligation to try to control because they all affect us. So that's my take on Little Women. Brilliant. I love it. I think it's a great pick. Absolutely. I'm pretty sure it's well-known globally because even here, like, it's considered a classic. Yay. Let's, let's hear it for a woman writer from the 1850s. <laughs> Fantastic, isn't it? Yeah. My next pick is Tomorrow's Promise by Radcliffe. Ah, uh, good one. The blurb is, Adrian Pierce, buffeted by fate and abandoned by love, seeks refuge from her past as well as her uncertain future on Whitley Point, a secluded island off the coast of Maine. Tanner Whitley, young, restless, wild, and heir to a dynasty, desperately tries to escape both her destiny and the memories of a tragic loss with casual sex and wild nights, a dangerous course that may ultimately destroy her. One timeless summer, these two very different women discover the power of passion to heal and the promise of hero that only love can bestow. There's a very personal reason why I love this one. Anyone who's familiar with my coming out story knows it was a rather tumultuous time in my life. And not just because I was coming out, but because I was in love. And the girl who I was head over heels with was never going to love me back because she was straight. Well, that's what I thought anyway. So while I was reading this book... A lot of the feelings that they had, not because any of the characters are straight, but they had a lot of reasons why they couldn't be together. So it was, it mirrored my own inner turmoil when I was reading this book. And so it made a huge impact in my life. Now, for those who don't know, that girl, the straight girl, and I say that with air quotes, she's sitting next door and I'm married to her. <laughs> <laughs> and it's a great book. And I love angsty romances. And this is a really good one. Mm-hmm. Books that reflect us back to ourselves, they can just have such a profound effect on us. It's amazing. That's what I, it, one of the rewards of writing lesbian fiction is that the awareness that it won't happen with every reader, but there is always going to be a reader or two whose life you are literally writing. And when they read it, it just resonates in a, in a really special way. And you know, I'll get occasionally a letter from someone who'll just say, that book, that was my life, and that's what I was going through, and how did you know? 
So that's just an amazing part of the lesbic world. Yeah. That's why I do what I do. When I was 19 and I was struggling with my own sexuality and I had been in denial for many years and I was just eventually like, okay, I just, you know, I need to to come to grips with who I am now. Picking up lesbic made me realize that actually it's not this weird freaky thing that it feels like it is. It's normal. We're people. We're not these weird freaks. We're not sexual deviants. And it, it wasn't that my family was anti-gay. It's just that nobody in my life was gay. So I felt like a complete outsider. Mm-hmm. And Lesvik included me. And your books were one of the first that I read and made a huge impact. Well, And then we find out that there are millions of people who feel exactly the same way, that they're just one of a kind. So it's, it's, it's really great to make those connections. And my number two book is called Sex Variant Women in Literature, a Historical and Quantitative Survey. And it's by Jeanette Howard Foster, and it was written in 1956. Speaking of the things that we find, that, that we discover we weren't alone, and not only were we not alone, we're, we've been present through literature th- since the Greeks, at least. So this is a really amazing work of scholarship that was published in 1956 and then republished by Niad Press in, I want to say, the late 1970s. And Jeanette Foster was the librarian to the, I mean, I have the name of the institute right, but it was Kinsey's Sex Research Institute in the 1940s and 50s. That's, she was the librarian who was cataloging materials they were collecting while she was also collecting anything of the, of the classics that she felt had some sort of lesbian content in it or a subtext that she called sex variant, women who did not comply with the social norms for women at the time the book was written. And so a character who was against the norm. Often they were lesbians, often they were just simply unusual women for their era. And so she starts with the Greeks and she goes all the way through the Greeks and she goes all the way through, you know, name all of the classic literature and she finds the subtext, the characters that are there. And for it being a scholarly work, it's actually, there were some parts that I skipped just because I didn't really care for those works, but I still am aware that she found you know, pieces in them. I thought that the chapter on the Bronte sisters was really cool. She definitely, she believes that Emily Bronte, who I think is Wuthering Heights, was what she wrote, was definitely involved in a relationship with another woman and that that's reflected in both Wuthering Heights and in her poetry. So it's this really cool work, walk through all of the things we're told all our life to read, that they're important. And yet, when I was looking at it, I kept going, oh, oh, and everything going, oh, I just need to look at things with different eyes. And if you look with different eyes, well, then we're pretty much everywhere. And the isolation that we feel is often imposed by the historian who has decided the story belongs in in a certain context, which, so, so I was reading it and it brings me to Christabel because she covers the epic poem Christabel by Samuel Taylor Coleridge and basically asked the question, why would Coleridge write a poem where a young woman is walking in the forest and comes upon a woman who lives in the forest and that that she must by default be evil? That any woman who lives by herself is evil, which I don't think is a script that 
should stand. <laughs> so I just flipped the script. What if the woman living alone by herself in the forest is actually the good person in this tale? And that the knight who comes to rescue the young woman is actually the one who is the tormentor and the evil. So that's where the idea for Christabel came from. And it was while I was reading her, her chapter on the nativist literature that Coleridge was part of. I recommend it to anybody who can find it. It's often a library work that you might be able to convince your library to borrow from another library for you so that you can read it. It's also available, you know, for purchase or probably in print used, but it's, it's worth it for anybody who wants to sort of take that walk through literary history and go, there we are, and there we are. Oh, and look, there we are being made evil again. And that act of making us the evil characters or women who are non-compliant, the evil characters makes us not want to be like them. It's sort of a social control thing that seeps into a lot of the scholarship. And she just confronted it head on and said, you know, let's, let's flip our, take out our eyes and put in different eyes and see things anew and differently. So that sex variant, women in literature, it was transformative. I think I was in my early 20s when I read it, mid 20s, maybe late 20s. That sounds fantastic. On a side note, if you're interested in that sort of thing, we have a once a month podcast done by Heather Rose Jones, who looks at real lesbians in history. Heather's whole motif project is just, it's amazing stuff. And she's really precise. And then she also gathers up research by other people and says, and you should look at this too. And it's, so it's really great. Yeah. It's like, she's just jumping off from Jeanette Foster's work. It's, which is wonderful to have our catalogers, Lillian Faderman as well for the whole LGBTQ community. So yay. Okay. So my number three pick is Fingersmith by Sarah Waters. This is just, it's a really, really beautifully written book. And I'm going to read the, the blurb. London, 1862. Sue Trinder, orphaned at birth, grows up among petty thieves, fingersmiths, under the rough but loving care of Mrs. Saxby and her family. That's in inverted commas. But from the moment she draws breath, Sue's fate is linked to that of another orphan growing up in a gloomy mansion not too many miles away. That just gives you a very, very broad stroke of what this book is about. It's a big book. It's like over 500 pages, and it's split into three parts. One is told from Sue's part. One is told from the other character's part. And when you get to the second part of this book, you won't believe that you're reading the same story. It's amazing. Waters is an incredible author. Now, the reason this changed my life is this was one of the first books that I read which took the romance and put it into a side plot as opposed to the main plot, which kind of turned my world upside down a little bit because I was like, wow, that's awesome. Because as much as I love romance, it it opened up a whole world of possibilities of what lesbian could be. So it could be, suddenly any lesbian could be in any story, and it could be so much bigger than just hmm. romance. It's, a, it's an amazing book, and I absolutely, if you have not read it, you need to read this book. So that's my number three. I yeah, I agree. And it's great to have really well done books that just tell a story where the protagonist is lesbian and it informs who she is, but it doesn't drive who she is. And you can always tell when that's authentically done because it just resonates on a, on a great level. So yeah, I love Sarah Waters' work. So great, great third choice. My third choice is a is a seminal classic work that was the second lesbic I ever read, which is a fun story about why it was the second one. And that's Curious Wine by uh, Catherine Forrest, 
And so that was published in 1983. It's such a classic, I don't think I need to go into a lot of detail about it. It was basically the first smash bestseller, widely distributed, released in multiple countries by NIAID and available worldwide in there in the early 1980s. It's just an, an amazing book. And it was the second book because I, this is how, it, it's the book that got me into lesbian fiction. We went to see Desert of the Hearts at the movies and my very clever partner noticed that it said based on the novel by Jane Rule. Well, she thought, you know, that was illegal. So <laughs> she went to the Berkeley Public Library and found Jane Rule. And that was back in the days when card catalogs existed and you looked things up on piece, little pieces of card. And it said Rule, comma, Jane and gave a subject matter index of lesbian fiction. Again, we thought that was illegal. It was the 1980s, right? So she very logically went to the subject index, lesbian fiction, and started at the beginning. So the very first book of lesbian fiction I ever read was by Aldridge, comma, Sarah, the A. And then she kept writing down the names in alphabetical order. And the next one on the shelf was Forrest, comma, Catherine, Curious Wine. And so that was the second one I ever read. And I had read that, like I said, thousands of Harlequin romances and hundreds of other types of books as a teenager, just looking for strong female characters and which I know sounds weird to say that Harlequin romances, but they did. They had strong female characters, mostly. And here I was reading something where I didn't have to do any, any swapping of pronouns. I didn't have to try to dream myself into the story. I was actually in that story, it was constructed around the type of person that I was. And I gave up all of my thoughts of writing the romance literature that had existed in my life up till then, which was straight romance, and decided, you know, I, I would never write something as, as beautiful and as transformative as Curious Wine, but I was sure gonna try. And so I've been devoted to lesbian fiction ever since. So that was how transformative Curious Wine was. And for anyone who hasn't read it, it's um, written in 1983. It, there, there are passages now at the very beginning that are a little dated because it's it's very much about where the women's movement was at that time. But as soon as you hit the romance with Lane and Diana, it just cooks on all cylinders and is just an amazingly lush and sensuous story without being erotica. It's just unprecedented how she made the the sensuality of the women so plain and yet the most graphic word in the whole book is breast. It's an amazing story and it makes you believe in love and as um, Catherine describes it herself, this is a story of two women who have all the other choices in the world open to them and they make the hard one which is to choose each other. It's just, it's a great read so I thoroughly recommend it to everyone as just a classic work of lesbian fiction. That's just a, an amazing description. <laughs> and I've I've heard a lot of people say that this is their their favorite book. Yeah. How do you feel knowing that you've done for others what she did for you? It's a really weird feeling. It re it really is and I I feel like I got extraordinarily lucky that Curious Mind was there for me to find at the right time in my life and that all of these women had spent you know, a decade and a half creating the women in print movement 
where their entire focus was getting women writers into print because they were excluded so thoroughly from everything except romance writing. And certainly lesbian fiction became a huge part of that. So I'm just so lucky because they did all that massive amount of work and I got into the field that really, it could not have been a better mo moment in time. I mean, it was, my first book was in 1989 and the 90s, it just exploded. Lesbian fiction was everywhere. Women's bookstores were, there was one in every town practically. So it was really, there was like a thousand in the United States and there's, you know, a dozen now. So it was really cool. And that, uh, so it's hard. I, I just feel like I got lucky and it's an amazing thing to be part of. It's, it's almost magical. In fact, it is magical. <laughs> I'm seeing a big push in Lesvik to broaden it, to grow it. Mm -hmm. And I'm just very chuffed to be part of the movement. <laughs> All right, so my number four pick is Shell Game by Benny Lawrence. Ah. Have you read it? It is the number two book in my read stack. I keep coming, coming back to it, and every time I get really deep into one of my own works in progress... I have to stop reading other works. I'm just, I'm one of those writers. So, and then I binge read when I'm done writing my own stuff. Um, so Shell Game keeps coming up to the top of my thing. I know so many people who just absolutely love this book. So tell me, tell me all about it. <laughs> all right. Well, the, the thing about Shell Game is you're either going to love it or you're going to hate it. There is no middle ground with this book because, <laughs> because Benny Lawrence has such a unique voice. She's got a very tongue-in-cheek, witty, smart... She doesn't play by the rules. She's she's off on her own pluck. And she's like this because she's a lawyer. She sees the worst of humanity. And so she doesn't have time to pussyfoot around things, basically. So, I'm going to read the blurb. Life in a remote fishing village in the middle of a civil war is neither safe nor inspiring. So... When an opportunity comes along for a village girl, Lynn, to be kidnapped and enslaved by Darren, a ruthless pirate queen, she takes full advantage of it. But Darren is neither as ruthless nor as piratical as she appears at first glance, and Lynn's not exactly what she seems to be either. In between encounters with old girlfriends, a slow death involving marmalade, and bounty hunters with no sense of humour, Lynn and her new mistress attempt to work out exactly what they are to each other and who's in charge. That's actually quite a good description of this book. <laughs> it sounds delightful. It is. On the surface, this is a tongue-in-cheek story of a pirate and a woman who's running from something. But beneath that, this book is a commentary on being a captive and losing your ability to choose. Mm. This book is an incredibly amazing read. And it brought layers to my lesbic world because it was, first of all, it was one of the the funny books. So it's a laugh out loud funny book and you don't get a lot of that in fiction, never mind lesbic. Mm -hmm. Also because Lawrence is in the profession she's in, she's got this, this insight into humanity that both sees the best and the worst of people. And so she writes these complex characters and these complex situations that seems very simple, but when you really dig down, it's actually, it's quite a, a thought provoking story. And if you're interested in that, go to the Lesbian Review, look at her profile, and she actually talks more about that there. So that's why Shell Game has changed my life. With each discovery of a new kind of a lesbic book, my world broadens, and I realize that actually it can be, and it should be, everything, not just romance, mm -hmm. as much as I love romance. Yeah, it's it. You know, it just sounds amazing. And again, we've we've sort of your fourth book sort of ties a little bit in the matter of 
of choice. I still see way too many books where captives are presumed to be consenting to whatever happens to them because they quote fall in love, which is a storyline that just, it puts all my, my teeth on edge and raises my hackles and all that. But anyway, and so I've heard that this book really deals upfront with that. And yet within the context of a story that is just so fun that you get lost into it. So now it's at the top of my list. I really have to. So my fourth book is called Tell Me What You Like by Kate Allen, which is a mystery, an Alison Kane mystery, the first in the series, and it was published in 1993. And here's the, I'm going to read the blurb because this is a book that not a lot of people will know much about. Lesbian cop Alison Kane enters the world of leather dykes to investigate a murder outside a Denver women's bar. Author Allen doesn't back down from the sensitive issues of S&M, religious fundamentalists, and women-identified sex workers in this serious, slightly humorous debut novel of a new lesbian sleuth. So what this book did for me when I read it, which was in the early 2000s, and so it was written 10 years before that, and at a time when the women's movement was very pure in that it was full of purists who had a very set way of thinking that this was how everything ought to be. And if you fell outside those boundaries, you were not welcome to the table. And that included very much the BDSM community because there was a lot of debate about whether BDSM was a form of sexual abuse or whether it was aping the idea that some kinds of relationships are inherently abusive and in the exchange of power. So tell me what you like about it. what she did, Kate Allen did in, in all of her Alice and Kane mysteries was really go deep into the consent and the issues of consent and when consent is present and when it isn't. And that makes 100% of the difference in evaluating the health of a relationship. So it really opened my eyes to something that I had not really thought a lot about and how important it is that consent exists freely without any form of coercion. And then once it's given, then women are allowed to do whatever they want with their bodies, which is a whole different aspect of lesbian fiction that I, I still see it. And I see a lot of authors kind of pushing against the idea that our, that our heroines are either, you know, um, sluts or nuns. We see a lot of virginal behavior. And I've certainly written a lot where women are only allowed to be truly sexually satisfied with their soulmate because if she's sexually satisfied with someone who's not her soulmate somehow she's not a good person anymore and that gets back to the patriarchy and telling women they can't enjoy their bodies and all of those sorts of messages so this book was the one that just said screw that noise and just said put all that behind us except the fact that women are allowed to enjoy themselves curious wine gives that same exact message women are allowed to have to have sex, to enjoy sex, any way that they consent to have it. And as soon as you have consent, then, oh baby, whatever goes, goes. That was the book that just sort of opened my eyes and I've tried since reading it to liberate my characters more <laughs> in that sense that they enjoy sex for the sake of enjoying sex as well as with someone they love, as well as with people they care about. That it's possible to have good sex without being with your happy ever after soulmate. Fascinating. An interesting discussion. I think so. I think, and we're still talking about it, so. Absolutely. And you're right, there is this innate thing of if you sleep with people just for the sake of it, mm -hmm. you're a slut. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's interesting that you, a romance author, are pushing the boundaries in this because I would imagine in romance particularly, this would be a more difficult thing to, to push. Um, I, I think it is, especially since readers kind of like the idea that things are 
heightened with someone you love, and I don't disagree that they are. I agree that that becomes a, a special and different kind of relationship when you've met the person who is, you know, rocks your world. And yet we can't use that as a pejorative or as a weapon to separate women from each other as, you know. It also doesn't exclude good sex with somebody else. Right. Certainly there's no reason a heroine can't have been having a grand time with a lot of people and then meets Miss Wright. That doesn't make her um, somehow less able to judge the fact that she's just met Miss, Miss Wright, which is what happens in, in um, Tell Me What You Like. The, the main character is uh, the rare character in Les Fick, a butch who is also a bottom, and she meets Miss Wright inside the BDSM community, who is a high femme professional dominatrix. And the books are, I left this part out, the books are hilarious. They're just inherently funny because some of the situations are inherently funny. And so she writes a very funny take on all of this, as well as daring to sort of peek inside the community and uh, talk about the goods and the, the ups and the, and the downs and the goods and the bads about the BDSM community. I mean, it's not all roses. There are abusers who, who walk around inside of it, hiding behind the idea that they've freely gotten consent when actually they haven't. So she deals with how does, you know, how do drugs and alcohol play into issues of consent and that there's a difference with, as soon as someone is inebriated. If you're a good player, you stop because inebriation limits consent. So she just really picks at some of those issues, but it's all really, really funny too, because it's just funny. What a great choice. Definitely going to have to look that one up. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard to find, unfortunately. Hmm. All right, so my number five is Keepers of the Cave by Jerry Hill. There happen to be a lot of better published authors on my list. Yay. Well, it's Jerry Hill. I mean, it's it's Jerry Hill. What can I say? It's Jerry Hill. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) Okay, there we go. Karen Callmaker says, it's Jerry Hill, go buy it. The end. (laughs) (laughs) This one's a horror, and I love it. While investigations go on in Dallas and Baton Rouge after the disappearance of a senator's daughter, FBI agents C.J. Johnston and Paige Riley are assigned to the sleepy backwoods of East Texas for a dead-end assignment to infiltrate an all-girls school. Random disappearances dating back 50 years and more raise red flags that point to the tiny isolated community of Hogansville. But C.J. and Paige fear there will be little distraction from the memories of the one-night stand that they shared six months ago. Nevertheless, they integrate themselves into the lives of the teachers and staff, but soon the odd behavior of the townspeople has them convinced something sinister lurks there. Something, perhaps, that even the residents of Hogansville don't know about. (laughs) This was the first lesbian horror I read, and it was like discovering chocolate for the first time. (laughs) It tantalized my taste buds, and it made me crave more. This book... I actually wrote to Jerry Hill and I said to her, please, please write more horrors, please. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's unexpected from Jerry because you're, if you've read all her romances and it's just like, boom, wow, this is different. But it's still Jerry, it's still Jerry Hill with all of the wonderfulness that that brings to to the story. But yeah, it's different and yummy. It is. And I noticed that you were delighted by the chocolate analogy. And this is because you are a big chocolate fan. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is true. I am too, so there's that. Yeah, well, it's proof that the universe loves us and wants us to be happy. 
that's 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 what chocolate is. That and less fic, you know. It's, it's uh, only chocolate's been around a lot longer. So what a great great choice. It's it's again it, your transformative books are all ones that are outside the I would say the the majority of the type of less fics that's published because it, it it romances you know runs the market, which is true in all forms of publishing. Romance runs the market everywhere because that's readers are the one who put money into the publishing system and that's what they their first choice is uh romance so that that's followed by thrillers interestingly enough followed by thrillers and then followed by erotica i would say oh that's interesting so, okay yeah I, I think you've dabbled in some erotica have you found that they outsold your romances or got close actually they, they don't even come close i like writing erotica but romances you know way up at the top of the tree for for sales and then erotica is you know someday we're down still on the trunk there's just there's a huge gap between romance and everything else um and then you know thrillers and mysteries and then erotica and um after that i just i like writing it um i think you can really do something with characters when you look at them from the inside writing about a character's sexual life can really put a a beacon on what makes them tick um, so, or people often tell the truth when they're having sex, which is great. <laughs> Very good point. Actually, that had never occurred to me, but yes. Huh. Okay, cool. So what's your final book? My final book is something uh, also completely different. It's called Being Emily by Rachel Gold, which was published in 2012. And I have to give a disclaimer. I read this book as a manuscript submission for Bella Books, and that was what that version that I read is the one I'm talking about, though the published version is, you know, similar. It was just edited and those things, but I, I was lucky enough to read this book as a manuscript. And it was as transformative as any book I've ever read in my entire life. It, because I thought about, about things in a certain way on page one, and by the time I was done with the book, it was completely transformed my way of thinking about it. Because the the story is about a teenage girl named Emily who the whole world sees and calls Christopher a boy. And we are inside Emily's life as a transgender girl who uh, it's the first paragraph kind of puts you in it in that she uh, wakes up in the morning and waits as long as possible to look in the mirror because as soon as she does, she loses the continuity of herself as Emily because in the mirror is Christopher. And that made me reflect on, especially during my coming out, when I would look in the mirror and really feel that the person I saw in the mirror was not the person I was on the inside. And if I can understand that experience as a lesbian woman, then all of my thinking about uh, about transgender people needed to be revised and brought into, into a context that that saw them as not something foreign that I didn't understand. I, I suddenly understood it better than I than I had. And I got to let go of a lot of old tired thinking about gender that just made my life hard and difficult. And accepting of the fact that other people's gender is just not about me. It's in the same way that, that my marriage is not about anybody else's marriage etc etc um so being emily is just an amazing uh, young adult novel and rachel really brings you inside this character's life 
and the everyday choices that she's making to try to please her parents who see her as Christopher and trying not to disappoint them, trying not to be not the son that they want. Instead, she wants to be the daughter they have. They just don't know it. And juggling all of that inside of a, a teenager's life. And it so it, it's just amazing. And I invite anybody who thinks that they're confused by what transgender is and how that might relate to them, that they should just read the book and put yourself into it and let it see if it'll work some magic for you and help answer any questions. Um, so that that's my being Emily story. It was amazing journey to get to the other side of and it has it has a romance in it and it has really good people and, and people who are not so great and yet through it all you just know that Emily is going to survive and Emily's going to be okay by the end of it. So it's um it's just a great story. Fantastic. Um when was this published? Um 2012. Okay. So so 5 years ago. Very ahead of its time. Mhm. It was in some ways it was right on the the cusp of the beginning of a real um, growth and visibility for transgender people. When it came in, I mean, Bella's a lesbian publisher, and I was asking myself, well, this is a fantastic story. I have been grabbed in the first chapter, and I can't stop reading. So what makes this a lesbian story? And essentially it is that Emily has a girlfriend who doesn't know that Emily's a girl, because the Claire is... Um, is the girlfriend of Christopher. And so this is just another thing that Emily's trying to carry around inside of her and keep from exploding. It just She's just holding all of this inside. And so even after there's a general acceptance that she's Emily and not Christopher, now she has to deal with the fact that she's in a lesbian relationship. And that that also brings us as the second wave of societal coping that she, that she's going through. And the other thing that Rachel does that's just really brilliant is that um, is the use of gaming that allows uh, teens to select their gender, to select their attributes, their intelligence, and all of these elements where they build sort of the people they want to be in the game to win, but also it gives them a chance to be build the people they, they are themselves or they want to be just in life. So it, there's all this stuff just going on and yet it's just a great lively YA story. It's, it doesn't preach, it doesn't stop to explain anything to you. It just says, here's Emily, she's a real person and this is what her life is like. And as soon as you accept that that's Emily and not Christopher, everything in, in your head will change. I guarantee it. <laughs> it did for me. That's a, that's all I can say, really. Fascinating. Is the author trans? Uh, no, not to my knowledge. She must have just done a, a lot of research because to write that story cannot be easy. Uh, no, and she did, in fact. Um, in her submission material, she talked about how much um, as a, a journalist and... Um, in living in Minneapolis, I believe, that she'd just been a part of the LGBTQ community, emphasis on the on the L and the T, and that it had informed writing the book and that she'd had um, trans people read it to make sure she wasn't co-opting, um, you know, the culture inappropriately. So uh, she just did an amazing amount of work. And her follow-up to that, My Year Zero, is, is 
really, a really another great novel with, um, a, I'll just give you a snippet of the premise. Basically, now it's college time and all the conversation and rumors in college is that somebody in their dorm is transgender. And so this really kind of kick-ass lesbian in the dorm just says, okay, it's me because she knows that there's a transgender person somewhere in the dorm and she doesn't want them to be the one who gets bullied. And she ends up being the one who gets bullied. And it feels that she's just in a better place in life to cope with it. And yet it's more intense than she expected it to be. So it, that's just a, it's a really great story about, about everyday heroes trying to make life better for the people they know in their lives. So it's just great. Huh. That sounds great too. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah. Okay. Do you have any other ones you want to slip in there? <laughs> well, I have a couple of honorable mentions. Um, uh, the, the, the first of which is I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings by um, Maya Angelou, which is her, the first of her, I think, two memoirs. I grew up in a, a really, really white world and had not read anything that talked honestly about what racism felt like. Um, and I remember in the book coming to the part where her mother takes her to the dentist because she needs to go to the dentist and I've been to the dentist and I'd never imagined a situation where the dentist would look at me and say, I'm not going to work on your teeth. I would, I'd sooner work on a dog. And that moment really made me aware that I lived in a very nice bubble that I didn't even perceive that that could happen. And here, even though it had happened 20 years before, I was aware that that thing, some things had not changed. So that was a great, uh, just a book. And I had not read it until I was in college, which was also that it was never assigned in high school curriculum. I think now it is assigned, um, but it was a college read for me and just changed my life again. Certainly in that act of reading is putting on different glasses and seeing the world differently because of what the author has brought to you. So that was really cool. And then I have two others. Um, one is the Dorini Chronicles by Katherine Kurtz, which concerned, among other things, a prince named Kelson. And we named our son Kelson. So you can tell how much I loved that series of books. <laughs> and, um, and then there's sort of following up on the Jeanette Foster Sex Variant Women book is a, another nonfiction book by Rianne Eisler, E-I-S-L-E-R, and it's called The Chalice and the Blade, where she basically goes through history, things like cave paintings and, and social history, and looking at it and saying, well, this is what we're told when you read a book about this history. But if we look at it from a different standpoint, change, change our eyes a little bit, we'll see that what we're told is the male version of that history and there is a female version. So something simple like the cave paintings where you have the creature standing out in the field with the all the lines around them. The inter first interpretation was that it was a great battle where they were firing arrows to bring down the beast to feed, you know, it was a hunter story. And her point was, well, why can't we look at that cave painting as somebody's pastoral landscape? Why are those arrows and not blades of grass or wheat or corn and a little thing like that to realize that this is male history and then there may be a less male, less hunter 
less aggressive version of that history. And so it, it's really easy read. It goes very quickly. And it's um, one of those fun things where now I can't go to a, a museum without going, yeah, you call it a, like the Venus of Willendorf, um, those little fetishes, little rocks where they were always carving the female, the really grand, large female figure. They'll, you'll find them in museums referred to as um, sexual fetishes or fertility, but they're essentially the cross the, the, the ubiquitous religious symbol of the era. They weren't just a fertility rite, you know, or, or something like that, because they're, they're spread all over the world, the European world and the Asian world, just way too widely to be just, you know, um, about sex. <laughs> so anyway, so I recommend The Chalice and the Blade too for anybody who wants to go down that rabbit hole. It's, it's a fun rabbit hole. And that's it, that's my honorable mentions. They almost made it to the top five list. <laughs> well, you are keeping in tradition with our top ten lists being way more than top ten. <laughs> so that all works out nicely. Karen, where can people find you if they are interested in purchasing your wonderful, amazing, fabulous books, which I highly recommend everybody does, and start with Christabel and then <laughs> go through and read all of the others too. Uh, I like that. Well, I can be found um, at Bella Books, of course. They have the most complete collection of my work. I have a few digital stories on my website that are there. Some of them are even free. So go to callmacro.com and, and look for those. And um, you can also go to your favorite e-tailer, like Amazon, like um, Barnes & Noble, Tolino. And just type in Callmaker because there's just one. And... You're on Facebook and you're on Twitter as well. Yes, you can find me there too. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, you're very welcome. This was great fun. And thank you for doing the podcast. I, I think that people like listening to things when they're doing, you know, driving and doing whatever. So a podcast is great. I'll, I'm looking forward to telling people to go download it. Yay. Yeah. To support the show... Don't forget to subscribe and rate this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. And you can come and talk to us on our Facebook group. It's the Lesbian Talk Show chat group. All the podcasters are there, and you can ask them questions. Bye-bye. Bye. So, Karen, your latest book, the one that's just been published, is... Um... Oh, dude, sorry, it's just looking at my mind Captain of Industry. There you go. <laughs> um, that that's not true. That that's true. I just wait. I've I double negative to myself. Yeah, that's probably a good plan, actually. Then, oh baby, whatever goes goes. Okay, cool. I almost said an expletive. <laughs> For some reason, I'm getting horrible lag. I don't know why. Oh.